0: Turn with me in your Bibles then to Daniel chapter 2, and we'll finish off the chapter where we left it on that cliffhanger in verse 31. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together. And became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that there was no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Then, if we skip down to verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be, part, will, shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile." As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron doesn't mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall not not be left to other people, it shall break in pieces, and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Amen. This evening, God willing, we're going to see three things from Daniel chapter 2. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, we're going to see a number of questions that are put to us in the chapter. And then we're going to consider how on earth we're going to get the answers. And then at the end, I'll give you the answers. First of all, then, these questions in verses 1 to 6. What do you think about on your bed at night? One night, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, went to bed and he was thinking about the future. We get that from verse 29. But he wasn't just thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow. He was thinking big. He was thinking very big. He wasn't just thinking about himself and his family and his country or even his empire. He was thinking of the whole world and all of her inhabitants. He was thinking about all of mankind and the end of all things. Have you ever wondered about that? Where are we all going? As a country or as a planet? When will this planet of people stop ticking? Nebuchadnezzar then woke up having had some disturbing dreams. Now, we're not told that the dream is straight away, are we? We're, we kept hanging on until the end of the chapter. But we are told that he was well and truly freaked out by these dreams. They really disturbed him, didn't they? Is something terrible going to happen to me? He seems to have been thrown into a state of paranoia and anxiety, wondering about these questions. Now, here Nebuchadnezzar is an example of those deep-seated insecurities which drive us mad. That conviction, and you know what I'm talking about here, that our days are numbered, and we don't know what's coming next. This last 12 months, perhaps more than any other, has really troubled us, hasn't it? We've been troubled by our own thoughts, unsettled by our own insecurities and uncertainties. What is going to happen to me and my country? Are the nations going to collapse? And these questions only broaden and deepen as we think of them. What do our lives even mean? Where are we all going? Why is it the government's seems so temporary and fragile. A quick Google search will show you that in the last 12 months alone, the following countries have been disturbed by some sort of significant upheaval. Venezuela, Vietnam, Yemen, Chad, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Russia, USA, Kurdistan, China, India, Turkey, Iran, Bulgaria, Belarus, UK. And those are just the ones I could be bothered to write down for you. The list goes on and on and on. What is the end of all of this? When will this succession of kingdoms and authorities finally come to an end? And will I be here to witness it? When we ponder these things, I dare say that we get in touch with the same anxiety which choked up Nebuchadnezzar. It says here in verse 1 that his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. He says there in verse 3, my spirit is anxious. I have a quote here from a man smarter than me. He says, mankind is driven by the basic insecurity of human existence to make himself more secure. So he grasps for position, power, wealth. But the higher that he climbs, the greater he knows his fall will be. Do you know that experience? Climbing higher and higher and higher, but just feeling, I've only got that much further to fall. Questions. Questions about the ultimate destiny of the world and humanity drove Nebuchadnezzar mad with frustration. And they do the same to us. We just don't know these answers, do we? All we know is that at any moment now, we could all just cease to exist for one reason or another. We aren't safe. And it drives us nuts. So let's wonder for a moment now in chapter 2 about how we could possibly find answers to these questions about the ultimate destiny of mankind and even ourselves. One possible way to get these answers is in verse 7 to 13. What do you do with hard questions like these, especially those that keep you up at night? Do you have a thing that you do? Some people swear by a cup of tea. I think we all think, don't we? Think. How do we get the answers? We think nebuchadnezzar thought and thought and thought as he tossed and turned on his bed at night but to no avail the future remained dark uncertain obscure worrying and so he calls for help in verses one to nine the greatest smarty pants of the world were recruited to help him work out these deep questions to try and get some answers will they think their way to the answers is what hangs on the chapter. This is a bit like what we do today. I think you might agree when we employ historians and we say, tell us, why does history repeat itself? Some of us turn to psychics and we say, is the UK breaking up? Will Scotland leave? Will Ireland leave? And so forth. Vote for the independence of Wales and things like that. Maybe we turn to psychologists. Why am I the way that I am? Why do I feel like my end is so uncertain and while you're at it tell me why your empire is so unstable we go to the scientists where does the world even come from where is it going some of us have even turned to astrologers what's in the future who am i going to bump into today we might turn to the little girls like greta thurnberg how will the world end We go to the big brains in NASA. Does this destiny of humanity lie in the stars? And what's happening is that as a population, we are getting together all the thinkers that we can think of to think. To try and think our way to these answers to life's big questions. But what Daniel 2 tells us, in verses 10 to 13 especially is that for all of our thinking, for all of our books, for all of our hashtags and conferences, we inevitably fail. The greatest minds are stumped. Look at all these verses where all of these assembled, clever people come back to the king with nothing at all. Nothing. It's quite telling, isn't it, that Nebuchadnezzar asks not just, what does it all mean? he says, tell me my thoughts. What are my dreams? See that in verse 5 and 6. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. You see, we don't even understand ourselves, let alone the rest. The best of us cannot read minds. We cannot tell dreams. We cannot see the future. We cannot understand the human heart. Can we? Here's another quote. We have nothing in our own thoughts, conscious, subconscious, or unconscious. We have nothing in our dreams, our questions, or our philosophies of life that can lead us even in the general direction of the light and truth of that final answer for which our hearts desperately cry. Any light must come from outside of us. To illustrate this, I want you to imagine now, if you've got a garden, think about your garden and all the worms that are wriggling in the ground underneath. Imagine them all now getting together, all those worms while you're in church, they get together with a little conspiracy under your lawn, let's find the sun. Not only are they 90 odd million miles away from the sun, they have no eyes to see it. And not only that, they live on a completely different plane of existence, under the earth. This is what it's like, us trying to think our way to the answers of life, trying to think about who we are, who God is, what's the end of all of these things. Now, while we're talking about these things, what we're doing is we're tapping into certain doctrines that about revelation, or if you prefer, epistemology. Right Now, I'm You don't need to know those words, just some people like them. What you need to know is this, what Nebuchadnezzar was learning, what this chapter teaches us, is that you and I are utterly helpless to answer our own gripping questions. We need to be shown the answers from the outside. Am I a bit cynical here, do you think? Maybe this is a bit pessimistic. Well, let's have a look. These probably are the brightest minds in the world at the time, okay? Now, look at verse 11. When they put all their heads together, this is the extremity to which their best efforts could get them. This is a hard question that the king asks, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except for God. That is a good translation. Except for God, and his dwelling is not with flesh. That's as close as we can get with all of our brain power. So how do we get the answers? If thinking doesn't work, there must be something else. So let's think about prayer. Verses 14 to 24. Prayer. Think for a moment about the different reactions to this scenario by Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. One tantrums and the other prays. Verse 17 to 18. The king here is driven by fear, anxiety, desperation, ignorance. But the one who knows God in Jesus Christ, Daniel, is driven by confidence and light. Daniel is almost amusingly the single point of sanity. He's not losing his rag like everyone else. He's focused on the rock-solid truth of God. Look there, verse 15 and 16, where everyone is running around, losing their heads. You've got Arioch, the chief of the king's guard and so forth. They're all running around like mad, trying to do what the king wants. And Daniel's saying, what's all the rush? Why is this so urgent? Now, keep that doctrine of revelation in mind, okay? That uh, we can't see anything unless God shows it. And now turn back a page and look at chapter 1, verse 17. It says here that God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and all dreams. That being the case, tell me, why does Daniel pray? If God has given him all understanding in visions and dreams, why does he pray? It doesn't matter how gifted Daniel is. He knows that he remains dependent on God to reveal, to tell us. Daniel is not self-confident with his gifts and his knowledge. He is committed to prayer. Look there at verse 17 to 18 where he gathers his friends together and that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. The bottom line is this, that Daniel prays because God does speak. The big brains of Babylon were totally wrong in verse 11, weren't they? They were wrong to suggest that God knows the answers but doesn't care or cannot tell us. Daniel corrects them. He says that not only does God know, but he does care to tell us. And he does reveal these things to us. He doesn't let us wriggle around this world like worms with no eyes. He opens our eyes to tell us. Look at verse 27. The secret that the king has demanded. The wise men cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to the king what will be in the latter days. Or you can see in verse 23. You have made known to me What we asked of you. Our living God is a speaking God. And how we must praise and thank him for that. In the beginning, in the beginning, the world was what? Do you remember in Genesis 1? Dark, formless, senseless. And what happened? Our God spoke. He opened his mouth, and what came out? Word and light. Now listen carefully, I'll say this slow. The Word of God and the light of the world was born out of God in the beginning, into the world, to fill it with truth and light and sense. God has always been a self-revealing, answer-giving God. Supremely, the Son of God, called the Word of God and the light of the world, Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that that is what Daniel is referring to in verse 22. I believe he is referring to Christ when he says that God knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. This is so important, so please turn with me to Hebrews in chapter 1. A little insight here to this revelation of God, that it is God who speaks and tells us the truth. Revelation 1, from verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. And this is what makes Daniel 2 verse 11 such an amusing irony. Because they said that God doesn't dwell in the flesh. And he's the only one who can give us the answers. But God indeed does dwell in the flesh. He, in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, God, has taken flesh to reveal God to us. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who walks amongst us in this world, opens his mouth and reveals to us the secrets, the answers of God, to these burning questions that we have, Jesus gives us the answers. Allow me to read to you from John chapter 1. These words are so clearly put there and it brings so many of these things together. John chapter 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is telling us that Jesus is the revelation of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Later on he says, No one has seen God at any time. We're like worms without eyes, but the only begotten Son, Who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. Although we are blind and unable to think our way to ultimate truth, there really is someone who gives answers and cures that anxiety that troubles us. Jesus says, I am the truth. So, are you going to try and think your way to those answers that trouble you about life's purpose, about the destiny of the world and all of its inhabitants? Or are you going to pray? Are you going to seek Jesus Christ, the revelation of God, and find in him All of your answers. Let us turn to those answers now in verses 25 to 45. Answers. Finally, Daniel relieves all of the tension of this chapter. It really was life and death, sort of hanging on by your fingertips until Daniel is given these answers and he goes to the king and he's to tell the king, now Nebuchadnezzar and us, the content of this dream and its meaning. Daniel has now thought in himself, and he has sought outside himself, and come to a conclusion. And what we're about to read here is the climax and conclusion of all human history. It's no secret, it's black and white now right in front of you. Nebuchadnezzar dreams about a statue made of different parts that represent different kingdoms. And out of nowhere comes this stone from nowhere, and it crashes into this statue and brings it all down to dust and it blows away in the wind. And that little stone grows into a mountain that covers the whole earth. Now, various identifications have been suggested for these metals. You can read more about that if you want in Daniel chapter 7. But that's not the main point. It certainly doesn't matter to Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar who these various metals were. The point is this, that the world's succession of kingdoms... That's the point. A succession of kingdoms is abruptly ended, destroyed and replaced by what? An inconspicuous little stone. I've got one here. A little stone like this, which then grows into an enormous mountain, an eternal kingdom which covers the whole world. The significance of this little stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was absolutely Awesome, wasn't it? Literally a world-ending stone. This stone that he dreams of is going to supplant and delete all previous powers, no matter how vast they were. It is a cataclysmic pebble. And it is identified with the first century Jewish carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. What is said to be true of that pebble, that it ends all of human history and replaces it with an eternal, invincible and unsurmountable kingdom, is true of Jesus. Jesus, Nebuchadnezzar dreams, concludes all of world's history. It overwhelms it and replaces it with his own eternal hegemony. 1 Corinthians 15 says this about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It says, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Now this statue, it clearly represents different kingdoms, doesn't it? And so they talk about Babylon being the head and Rome being the feet and different things like that. But is that all that it represents? Is that all? This dream is much more comprehensive than that. This succession of kingdoms that is represented by this statue, it includes contemporary power structures that we see in the world today. When we look at that statue, we may see in it Westminster and the House of Windsor. You can see the Senedd in there and the UN and all the other power structures that there are. Domestic power structures that are in our homes, who runs our homes. Domestic power structures in businesses, who's the boss in schools. It represents even ecclesiastical power structures. How churches run and who's in charge in churches. The point here is that it's all those places in day-to-day human life, wherein we are enthroned, all those places where we feel like we are in control and have some sort of authority, it is all destined for dust. It is all coming to nothing at all. So is it a surprise that we are so uneasy about these gripping questions of destiny? When in our heart of hearts, we fear and hate those probable answers of our own futility. We fear, verse 39, don't we? After you. This is why we all should tremble at the revelation of Jesus hurtling towards us to replace our own little kingdoms. One commentator put it really well. He said, Jesus has a coffin for every kingdom. And we can add to that that Jesus has a coffin for you and for your kingdoms. All those little places where you think you're in charge and in control, Jesus, this little stone, is going to destroy it and replace it with his own control, his own kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom has already smashed into this world. It has already begun to unstoppably grow now we don't have time to read it here you can read it later if you wish Matthew 13 from verse 31 where Jesus describes the kingdom of God as this tiny little seed which grows into an enormous tree and all the birds of the earth will come and nest in its branches every day people from all over the world are being swept up from the kingdoms of this world to rest in the branches of Jesus' kingdom. Even at this moment, I pray, even in this room, people are thinking, people are praying, people are seeing that Jesus is Lord. Abandoning our own little kingdoms, our own little places our own little thrones in our life where we are in control and have that power and have that authority we turn to the lord jesus instead to rule over us have you done that search now in your hearts where are you in control that you will not yield to jesus christ because one day Jesus is coming back and he will finally abolish all of the kingdoms of this world. They will just be swept off the table. Every nation will stop. Every government will cease. Every boss in the workplace. Every father figure at home. Every pastor. And everyone who says, I'm the king of my life. We will all bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. I like how Daniel puts it at the end of his interpretation in verse 45. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. This is what is going to happen. Before I conclude, let me ask you a very important question. How on earth can a little stone conquer the world? How on earth can a Jewish carpenter from a place like Nazareth become a king over all the cosmos? How can that even happen? The answer is in the book of Colossians, and chapter 2. If you've got the NIV, that puts it the best, I believe. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 says this, that Jesus... Having disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. In the cross. How can a carpenter become a king? By being crucified. By being nailed to a cross. Are you still thinking now? Are you trying to think? How can this make sense? Are you trying to think your way? try praying about the cross. Because when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes that we may understand the cross of Christ, we realize that it is there at the moment of his greatest weakness, at the moment when he was made a curse, made the least of all beings, lifted up from the earth and rejected by all his creation, suspended beneath heaven, rejected by God. It is at that moment when he was least like a king that he took rival kings and queens like you and me and he humbled us to powder. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see on him our foolish sin. He crushes us under the conviction of our stupid rivalry. Seeing the king of kings on a cross, we have to take our crowns, our fake foil crowns and throw them in the dirt. And when we have been thus dealt with by Christ on the cross, so broken down under a knowledge of our own sin, broken to know that we have offended the king of the universe, he picks us up out of the dirt. And he takes us in his hands and he reforms us into his own image, into the image of the king of kings, And he takes us treasonous rebels and he adds us to his own eternal kingdom to reign with him. And we are no longer doomed to dust, but raised to reign. Finally then, one more paragraph. What does the king make of all of this then? What does Nebuchadnezzar think about this dream which predicts his own end? Look at there, verses 46 to 49. He falls on his face and he calls Jesus the king. That's good, isn't it? Now, while you may this evening, you must join Nebuchadnezzar in naming Jesus the king of the world, of your world, of you. But it cannot stop there. You see, Nebuchadnezzar made a mental assent. He agreed agreed with the revealed truth about the inevitability of Jesus' coming and rule. And he made some recognition of that. But in his heart, he was simply relieved that he was the head made of gold. He was simply relieved that the world isn't ending yet. Everything is okay. And one chapter later, we read that he was totally unchanged, still doomed to dust. So the importance here for you and for me, do not let your mental assent, your agreement to this truth, be unaccompanied by repentance and personal reformation. I speak here to Christians as well as non-Christians. Do not let mental assent to this truth be unaccompanied by repentance and personal reformation. We must move beyond a nod to this truth, get on our knees and hate our sinful tendency to rule over our own lives in any area at all. We must turn unlike Nebuchadnezzar, from the addiction to rival Jesus as the king over anything. We must ask this gracious and wonderful, inevitable King Jesus to graciously forgive us of all of our sin and to include us, wonder of wonders, into his own kingdom, which shall never, ever end. Amen. Let me read just a verse from Daniel chapter 7 and then I'll pray quickly before we sing. These words come from Daniel 7 verse 27. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we can only stand here now, Lord, and stop our mouths when we contemplate the enormity of your power and your might and the inevitability of the rule of Jesus Christ to be unrivaled over all creation forever and forever. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, for entertaining any thoughts at all that we could be kings over anything in our lives. And we thank and praise you, Father, for being so gracious and kind to us as to open our eyes and to give us answers to these questions that consume us day by day. We do ask, Lord, for those millions of people that are on this planet, Lord, wriggling like worms with no eyes, troubled by questions about the meaning of life and the end of all things and we ask that you should have mercy on them and on us and open our eyes to see Jesus Christ as the king over all things we ask that you should grant us the repentance and faith that is necessary to forsake ourselves and enter into his kingdom that we should be under his blessed and eternal rule forever and ever we thank you for being so gracious and kind to us father And ask that you should bless us now as we gather around the table of your son. And as we feast upon him, Lord, and contemplate what he did to conquer all those powers, Lord, that we join hands with and serve. That he may replace them with an eternal and an everlasting kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you have granted spaces at your table for people like us. Sinners who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So grant these things to us, we pray, and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.